0: Brought to you by GSK. Shingles doesn't have an off-season, so make sure to recommend vaccination throughout the year. Learn more by visiting shinglesseason.com. Welcome to the last 2023 Annals of Internal Medicine podcast. I'm Dr. Christine Lane, Annals Editor-in-Chief, and I'll be sharing highlights of new material you'll find if you go to annals.org. This is a busy time of year for everyone, so let's get right to the new articles. First is a synopsis of a clinical practice guideline from the Kidney Disease Improving Global Outcomes Organization, also known as CADIGO, that offers guidance for the prevention, diagnosis, evaluation, and treatment of hepatitis C virus infection in persons with chronic kidney disease. This guideline is a targeted update of a 2018 recommendation that was triggered by new data on antiviral treatment in patients with advanced stages of chronic kidney disease transplant of hepatitis C virus-infected kidneys into uninfected recipients, and evolution of thinking about the role of kidney biopsy in patients with kidney diseases caused by hepatitis C virus. Among key changes in the recommendations from previous are expanding treatment of hepatitis C virus with sofosibir-based regimens to patients with chronic kidney disease with glomerular filtration rate categories G4 and G5, including those receiving dialysis, expanding the donor pool for kidney transplant recipients by accepting hepatitis C virus positive kidneys regardless of the recipient's hepatitis C virus status, and initiating direct acting antiviral treatment of hepatitis C infected patients with clinical evidence of glomerulonephritis without requiring kidney biopsy. The update also addresses the use of immunosuppressive regimens in patients with glomerulonephritis. COVID-19 appears to primarily infect respiratory tissues, and in some cases, live, infectious virus has been detected in tissues outside the lungs, including the brain. ray spread is suspected, and previous reports document viral RNA can be found in blood. However, recovery of replication-competent virus from blood has not been previously demonstrated. Next is an interesting case report from researchers at the National Institutes of Health that shows that replication-competent SARS-CoV-2 can traffic in blood during COVID-19 and seed tissues throughout the body. In this case report, the researchers studied blood drawn at the time of death to confirm viremia in a fatal COVID-19 case where viral sequence in blood and tissues match. Full-length genomic sequencing of pre- and post-viral culture, plasma, lung, and cardiac samples. Demonstrated more than 99% sequence similarity with multiple conserved mutations compared with a reference sequence from a critically ill patient who didn't have detectable antibodies against the virus. The authors note that use of permissive viro cell line increased sensitivity of detecting SARS CoV 2 in plasma from their patient, as did using plasma from the reference patient. According to the authors, further studies are needed to determine the implications of their findings for persons infected with SARS CoV 2 variants those with mild illness, persons recently vaccinated, or persons with waning immunity after natural infection or vaccination. Current risk models to predict atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease are underused in clinical practice because they are cumbersome, requiring physicians to collect risk factor information from medical history, physical measurements, and laboratory tests, and then input these factors into risk calculators. A model that uses only laboratory tests and does not rely on clinical variables or physician input may provide a significant advantage over traditional models. Researchers from the University of Toronto sought to develop and validate sex-specific prediction models for atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease using age and routine laboratory tests and compare their performance with that of risk models which require more information and greater physician input. They used an internal validation cohort of more than 3 million men and women to test the new models that they call the Canheart lab models. CANHART uses serum, total cholesterol, high-density lipoprotein cholesterol, triglycerides, hemoglobin, mean carpuscular volume, platelets, leukocytes, estimated glomerular filtration rate, and blood glucose, all standard lab tests. The researchers found that the models were well-calibrated, with relative differences of less than 1% between mean predicted and observed risk for both sexes. The authors say the next step is to see if automating these models in the electronic health record is associated with improving prescribing of preventive treatments according to clinical practice guidelines. The next article reports a randomized controlled trial that found that the use of endoscopic submucosal dissection for removal of large colon polyps was associated with a significantly lower six-month recurrence rate compared with endoscopic mucosal resection. However, endoscopic submucosal resection was associated with more adverse events. The researchers randomly assigned 360 participants to undergo endoscopic submucosal dissection or endoscopic mucosal resection. The authors found that endoscopic submucosal dissection was associated with a 0.6% rate of recurrence while endoscopic mucosal resection was associated with a 5.1% rate of recurrence. Adverse events occurred for 35.6% of endoscopic submucosal dissection procedures compared with 24.5% of endoscopic mucosal resection procedures. According to the authors, patients and physicians should be aware of these studied results not only to know when to choose endoscopic resection instead of surgery, but also to choose the endoscopic resection strategy that best fits the patient according to the lesion, the acceptance of follow-up colonoscopy, and the available expertise. In a new Annals Beyond the Guidelines feature, cardiologists and a geriatrician discuss their approaches to the diagnosis and management of heart failure with preserved left ventricular ejection fraction, and that they would apply guidelines to an actual patient. All Beyond the Guideline features are based on the Department of Medicine Grand Rounds at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center in Boston and include print, video, and educational components. The proportion of patients with due-onset heart failure that have preserved rather than reduced left ejection fraction has been increasing over recent decades. In fact, heart failure with preserved ejection fraction now outweighs heart failure with reduced ejection fraction as a predominant heart failure subtype and likely remains underdiagnosed in the community. This increased prevalence is due in part to an aging population and a rise in risk factors for heart failure with preserved ejection fraction, including obesity and associated cardiometabolic disease. Whereas the diagnosis of heart failure with reduced ejection fraction is relatively straightforward, the diagnosis of heart failure with preserved ejection fraction is often more challenging to differentiate from other causes of symptoms such as dyspnea and fatigue. Discussants Dr. Jennifer Ho, a cardiologist, associate professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School, and a member of the Division of Cardiology at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center, and Dr. Ariella Orkaby, a geriatrician and assistant professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School, and a member of the New England Geriatric Research, Education, and Clinical Center at the Boston VA and Division of Aging at Brigham and Women's Hospital discuss the case of Mrs. B., a 77-year-old woman with dyspnea, a history of coronary artery bypass surgery, and suspected heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. Go to Analyst.org to watch a video of Mrs. B. talking about her condition, a video of the Grand Rounds discussion, to read a summary of the discussion, and to earn CME and MOC points. And heart failure is also the topic of this month's In the Clinic Review. Go to Analyst.org for practical updates on the Prevention, Diagnosis, and Management of Heart Failure. The article includes information for patients and a brief quiz to earn CME and MOC credit. Thiazides are commonly prescribed to treat hypertension, and hyponatremia is a known adverse effect, but the frequency of this adverse effect remains unclear. The authors of the next article sought to estimate the cumulative incidence of hyponatremia following initiation of thiazide diuretics in routine clinical practice compared to other first-line antihypertensive drugs using a nationwide registry from Denmark. The study spanned from 2014 through 2018 and included persons age 40 years and older who were new users of a first-line antihypertensive drug. They compared bendroflumathiazide with calcium channel blocker use and hydrochlorothiazide as a combination pill also containing renin angiotensin system inhibitors with renin angiotensin system inhibitor use. The researchers followed new users of antihypertensive agents for two years to examine the incidence of sodium levels less than 130 millimoles per liter. The study was large, including 41,926 new users of bendroflumethiazide, 13,830 new users of hydrochlorothiazide, 52,394 new users of calcium channel blockers, and 114,678 new users of renin angiotensin system inhibitors. The two-year cumulative incidence of hyponatremia was 4.21% for bendroflumathiazide and 3.71% for hydrochlorothiazide use. The two-year cumulative incidence of hyponatremia was 4.21% for bendroflumathiazide and 3.71% for hydrochlorothiazide use. With a risk difference of 1.58%, with a 95% confidence interval, 1.28 to 1.88%, versus calcium channel blockers, and 1.44%, with a 95% confidence interval of 1.09 to 1.79%, versus renin angiotensin system inhibitors, respectively. The risk differences of hyponatremia were larger among participants who were older and had higher comorbidity burden. The hazard of hyponatremia was largest during the first months of treatment. Although transgender persons are disproportionately affected by HIV infection, pre exposure prophylaxis or PrEP use has been low in this population. Clinical encounters for gender affirming hormone therapy provide opportunities for HIV prevention. So, the authors of the next article estimated the number of commercially insured transgender women and transgender men in the United States and their use of HIV prevention services from 2014 through 2021. HIV services of interest were HIV testing and pre- prescription. There was an increase in the prevalence of transgender-related diagnosis codes during this period, as well as in the proportion of persons who used gender-affirming hormone treatment. In 2021, among 10,613 transgender women with a test or diagnosis of sexually transmitted infection in the last 12 months, 61.1% had an HIV test, and among those, only 20.6% were prescribed PrEP. Among 4,184 transgender men with a history of a sexually transmitted infection, Only 48.4% had an HIV test, and among those, only 10.2% were prescribed PrEP. The low use of HIV testing and PrEP in this commercially insured population causes concern that it may be even lower among persons with public or no health insurance. These data suggest that HIV prevention opportunities are likely missed during clinical encounters for gender affirming hormone treatment. The COVID 19 pandemic's onset coincided with falling chronic airway disease exacerbations attributed to reduced circulation of common respiratory viruses, but whether this drop affected disparities in asthma morbidity nationwide has been unknown. The next article reports a study of adults and children in the 2019-2022 to 2022 National Health Interview Survey that examined three outcomes each year a current asthma diagnosis, and among those ever diagnosed with asthma, any asthma exacerbation and asthma-related emergency department visits. The researchers looked at overall trends and trends within racial ethnic groups. Pre-pandemic, Black adults and children had the highest rates of asthma prevalence, attacks, and emergency department visits. Downward trends during the pandemic were seen for Black relative to White adults and children for asthma attack rates and emergency department visits. In contrast, asthma attack rates among white children increased in 2022 relative to Black and Hispanic children. The gradual decrease in emergency department visits and rebound of asthma attacks in 2022 after a small drop may be attributed to a fall in the circulation of common respiratory viruses. Differential exposure to tobacco, allergens, pollution, COVID-19, or control or inhaler usage during the pandemic could also have affected asthma trends and deserve further study. Well-being among resident physicians is a topic of concern. Studies of physician well-being commonly utilize narrow measures like happiness, life satisfaction, mental health, or burnout. However, the authors of the next article note that well-being is a complex and multifaceted construct. They propose the concept of flourishing as a holistic conceptualization of well-being as it integrates a variety of personal, mental, physical, and social aspects of well-being. The Flourish Index and the Secure Flourish Index were developed to measure flourishing. The Flourish Index assesses five domains happiness and life satisfaction, physical and mental health, meaning and purpose, character and virtue, and close social relationships. The Secure Flourishing Index adds a domain of financial and material stability. Using these flourishing indices, the authors surveyed residents from 14 residency programs in Connecticut, Illinois, Pennsylvania from April to August 2021 using convenience sampling at educational conferences. The secure flourish index had significant positive correlation with quality of life, well-being, resilience, viewing medicine as a calling and intrinsic religiosity, and a negative correlation with emotional exhaustion and depersonalization. The authors also looked at association of flourishing with program characteristics and speculate that individual residents flourish When high-quality leadership generally cares for residents' well-being, peer support and camaraderie between residents is robust, the structures of the program are just, and the shared mission of the program is clear. While more work needs to be done, the authors conclude that these findings support the role of the flourishing indices and their domains in evaluating resident physician well-being. While suicide mortality rates have declined globally by almost a third between 1990 and 2016, Suicide mortality in the United States has increased rapidly. Particularly high suicide mortality has been identified among American Indian and Alaska Native populations. The next article reports a study that examined trends and patterns in suicide mortality in American Indian and Alaska Native populations seeking insights into strategies to reduce health inequality in this highly vulnerable population. Using data from the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention WONDER database, the researchers examined data on deaths by intentional self-harm for each year from 1999 to 2020. Suicide rates increased across all race groups, but the rates were highest among white Americans, followed by American Indian and Alaska Native Americans. The researchers also found a sustained increase in suicide rates by firearm and hanging among both white and American Indian and Alaska Native people. In an accompanying editorial, Dr. Joseph Ghan from the Department of Anthropology at Harvard University and the Department of Global Health and Social Medicine at Harvard Medical School writes, There are clear precedents for investigating indigenous suicide as a function of societal processes and structural arrangements in general and of colonial subjugation and coercive assimilation in particular. Contrasting starkly with the interpersonal and individuating discourses of medicalization, this re-socialization of suicide powerfully contests the reigning formulation of the problem and recasts indigenous suicide as a post-colonial disorder in need of not just more and better medical treatment, but rather in need of social justice and societal reparation. In the end, no amount of medical care can resolve the howering predicaments of Indian country unless or until the unjust structural disadvantages that resulted from ruthless colonial subjugation are confronted and dismantled, end quote. I suggest that anyone who questions the editorialist claims go see the movie Killers of a Flower Moon. Additional new material includes the latest episodes of Annals Consult Guys and the Annals On Call podcast. The consult guides discuss surgery, following stroke, and Annals on Call discusses suspected bronchiectasis and mortality. That brings us to the end of this podcast, wishing you a healthy and happy close of 2023. Thanks to Beth Jenkinson, Andrew Langman, and Bernie Turner for their technical support. Brought to you by GSK. Shingles doesn't have an off-season, so make sure to recommend vaccination throughout the year. Learn more by visiting shingleseason.com.